are listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 68, Eating Disorders. We want to preface today's episode with a brief content warning. Today we are going to talk about eating disorders, a topic that may be challenging for some of our listeners. We will be discussing clinical and behavioral symptoms of anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, and the role of trauma and vulnerability to eating disorders. Please continue with this in mind and do pause the episode if you feel it is getting too heavy. We've put some resources on our mindingthebrainpodcast.com website. I also want to acknowledge that while I do not personally have lived experience with an eating disorder, as a woman I have definitely experienced a past history of disordered body image and eating patterns. The contents of this podcast have also been informed by many students who have generously provided their input to my knowledge of eating disorders, including those from the lived experience community. I want to explicitly give a shout out to Daphne Warnovitsky for her gracious and thoughtful input into the, the content of today's episode. Okay, thank you for that, Kim. Um, so let's get started. Uh, given that we're going to be talking about eating disorders today, do you think we should talk a bit about eating first? Yeah, I guess we should. <laughs> uh I think what's even better is we should refer our listeners to episode 11, where we interview Dr. Alfonso Abizade on the topic of eating and obesity. So if listeners want a deeper dive or an intro into this topic, it's a good suggestion to start there. But for now, it's important to recognize that when we think about eating, we might think eating only happens when we're hungry or when we haven't eaten in a while. But the reality is we often eat when we're not hungry or we don't eat when we are. And eating is also very social. Right? Yeah, it's a huge part of uh, cultures and religions and even like holidays seem to center around food very often. Yeah, especially American Thanksgiving, am I right? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh, even, like you mentioned, religious holidays and celebrations um, like center around food, but also the absence of food. So, fasting is common among many religions. I think like Muslim culture, uh, Muslim, uh, Judaism, Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's hard to think of a culture that doesn't have, or a religion that doesn't have fasting as part of um, their practices. Right. So, no matter what culture or religion, it has something to say about eating, whether it's mm -hmm. when to eat or what to eat or when not to eat. Exactly. Um, and, you know, it's very emotional too, right? So, we all have mm -hmm. like a... Uh, we're, we're sort of imprinted on certain kinds of foods when we're kids, and we have these, you know, uh, favorite, um, what's the word, like comfort foods and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, if we can all think about that famous scene in the, the movie Ratatouille, when uh, mm -hmm. the chef sort of calls to mind his mother's, like he tastes, I think he tastes the food uh, a bite. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, the food critic. He takes a bite of the ratatouille and he suddenly is totally transposed. Transported. Right Transported. There we go. Uh, to his his mother's um, food and cooking. And and you know this is why eating is very much tied up with emotions. We eat when we're happy. We eat when we're sad. When we're angry. And because of that. I go, well, I think part of the reason why eating is so uh, intertwined with emotions, it's why eating or lack of eating for, for that matter can become pathological. Because as we'll see with the evolution of the human brain, motivation and emotion circuits can be governed by higher order prefrontal cortical control circuits, which means for that reason, we can over control or under control our eating. We can sort of override or underride our hunger cues. Right. So I guess what you're saying is like the hunger, hunger is a very primitive instinct in, in, in animals, right? And but we've got a prefrontal cortex that can try to rest control of the body, make you eat when you when you're, you know, your more primitive parts of your mind is saying not to or not eat when it says it should. And um, I guess like, I mean, maybe it's like one general theory of eating disorders is that it's, it's prefrontal cortex going a little overboard. Yep. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into a little bit of that about the role. Well, maybe maybe I'll talk a bit about it. We'll see. Lay in anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about eating disorders. Right, eating disorders. So 
These refer to a category of disorders as outlined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, which we've referred to many times in this podcast. And the DSM is that Diagnostic Bible, and it has a whole category related to eating disorders. And sort of at the core of them all, so what they have in common, is both weight and food preoccupation at the core of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's dig in. Let's talk about um, anorexia nervosa. Uh, and you mentioned fasting and religion. Um, would you say that's uh, maybe where the first notions of anorexia come from? Sort of. There is a lot of written history on the topic of so-called fasting saints or nuns. And if we think about the origins of the word anorexia, it comes from the Greek an-an, without, and orexis, appetite. So anorexia means without appetite. And on its own, that word simply means the lack of the appet of an appetite. Um, but the fasting saints, that's more what we would call anorexia mirabilis, or holy anorexia, which was typically restricted to fasting nuns or religious women that literally did not eat because they wanted to be feel closer to God or to feel some, they were passionate about um, not eating as a, as a way to show their, their devotion to their religion. Yeah, so we wouldn't talk about fasting nuns as having anorexia nervosa, that means something different to us, right? Correct. Uh, <laughs> so the core feature of what we know of as anorexia nervosa is a dramatic, dangerous levels of weight loss that are not explainable by some other medical condition. And having the word nervosa sort of touched to the term implies that it is called by a quote-unquote nervous disorder, which does sound like horribly archaic termolo terminology, but it's, it's still persisting to this day. Yeah. So, uh, but is there a loss of appetite in anorexia? Sort of. At first, the individuals will deliberately override their body's hunger cues, sort of what we were talking about a little while, a few minutes ago. You know, your body feels hungry, and that's due to lack of food in the in the stomach, and then you have the production of of key hormones that are saying, okay, you know, you've you've depleted your your energy balance. You need to start eating, and most people. It's they respond to those cues or it's tied to the time of day. It's around lunchtime, you know, my stomach's grumbling. Right. So initially folks that would go on to develop anorexia, they would ignore those cues, even though they're hungry, right? So they are hungry. Um, but over time, after the individual ignores them, the body stops giving out those hunger signals. And in fact, people will report that through the process of like severe eating restriction, they don't actually feel hunger anymore. Although it depends, there are some that will re quote relapse to eating, and they will go through a period of not eating and then eat a certain amount, and then um, feel like they've eaten too much and go back to not eating and so on and so forth. But ultimately, yes, it is anorexia is a bit of a misnomer uh, in this context. And this all stems from some conscious goal to be thinner, right? For the most part, yes, it is tied to body weight. So often individuals who will later on go on to have a diagnosis with anorexia nervosa would have been considered more overweight or chubby, and I hate that word, but that's what's, you know, that's what they hear, right? Um, they hear all this, this commentary about their weight, and they've, they've gone through a period, either youth or adolescence, where they are, what they would perceive as being heavier than their peers, and then they start to diet, and for some people, once they start losing weight, this becomes an obsession, a compulsion. They become overly restrictive with their food intake. And over time, they would start hiding how little they're eating. So eating disorders, all of them, not just anorexia, involve a lot of shame, a lot of secrets. They tend to avoid social gatherings involving food and become increasingly obsessed with the number on the scale. So they are repeatedly um, looking at uh, their body weight, measuring themselves, measuring their food is also quite common. Okay, so how would one diagnose anorexia nervosa? 
Well, again, according to the DSM, it involves uh, you sort of have to meet this checklist of criteria. So first of all, you have to show restriction of energy intake relative to requirements leading to significantly low body weight in the context of age, sex, developmental trajectory, and physical health. So that's basically saying all other things being normal, right, given the fact that you might, uh, your uh, sex assigned at birth was female or you're male, you should be gaining weight on a specific curve somebody's not doing this and there's they've ruled out other possible um, physical health indicators so you're you're not eating and your body weight is either not going up or it's going down this is also coupled with an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat so individuals are become obsessed around that mm -hmm. and then finally a distorted perception of body shape or weight so folks with anorexia like it's the literature is a bit all over the place with this but for the most part they they actually feel like they're bigger than they are so they have what's called body dysmorphia they're what they look at in the mirror and what they see are the actuality there's there's a gap there right so they think that they're actually bigger and alongside with that they're placing undue influence of body shape on self-esteem or persistent lack of recognition of the seriousness of current body weight so you know you see a lot of these disordered cognitions in, in people with an, uh, anorexia and eating disorders in general is that their worth self-worth is tied to their shape so I am not lovable I'm not worthy unless I fit a specific mold or image and then I want to emphasize that there are different types of anorexia there's a binge eating and purging type or a restricting type and now we're going to get into bulimia a little bit later but some people might be thinking wait a second binge eating and purging happens in anorexia and the answer is yes it it just um if you have a diagnosis of anorexia, it is related to your body weight. So the severity of, of your anorexia nervosus is based on your body mass index, so how, how heavy you are relative to your height. And people who binge in the anorexia nervosa diagnosis, the binges are far different than what, what you would see in bulimia. And we'll talk about that later. But it, the most common form is the restricting type where you're just not eating uh, at all. Okay, so you said body mass index. Let's let's talk about what that is. Um, the body mass index is a it's kind of a measurement of what's a healthy weight, right? Yeah, more or less. So it's it's used typically in medical settings. It's uh, essentially a number. So it's your body weight in pounds, let's say, divided by your height in inches, and you have an adjustment for your age and your biological sex, and you go get a category. Um, whatever that number is, is a number sort of um, within a certain range of zero, although that's impossible, but let's say 10 to 50, let's say. So underweight is considered anything if your BMI is 18.5 or lower. Normal weight is 18.5 to about 25. Overweight is 25 to about 30. And obesity would be considered a BMI of 30 or greater. Okay. And does this, is this uh, correlated with health really strongly? Oh, well, uh, I w would love to go on a tangent about how horrible and racist the body mass index is, but um, that's not appropriate for today. But um, essentially, like, it, it really isn't. Like, if you were a bodybuilder, you would have uh, a BMI that's 30 or greater because your muscle mass is is heavier uh, proportionally right. based on your on your height. And let's be honest, like people who are what we considered overweight are actually in really good health. Um, there are folks that would be considered clinically obese that are otherwise healthy. So there are other measures of health and wellness that I think in today's society we need to be in, um, cognizant of. Um, and in this, this like I, I want to bring in the voice of folks with lived experience with eating disorders right now because traditionally, like as I mentioned, anorexia nervosa, the severity has been measured about uh, as to how thin a person is, right? So if you're, you're, you're the more the lower your BMI, the more severe your anorexia is. But, but 
But I'm hoping that you're, <laughs> there's a big but here. It's important to recognize it's not about body shape or size, right? So there's, someone can have very severe ill behaviors, but live in a larger body. And, you know, you could be coming to the, the, the doctor's office and your BMI could be in a normal weight, but you are doing severe restriction, right? And so we need to move away from defining anorexia and, and all eating disorders for that matter by being sick enough or thin, you know, thin enough to receive treatment. Like it, it shouldn't be about your body weight. It, it should to a certain extent because as we'll talk about anorexia, like you can die for sure. Somebody who has a severely low body weight, they're at high, high risk of, of mortality and morbidity. But we should be treating the person and the behavior, not the body. Yeah, I, I see where that comes from. I guess like, you know, there's treating the body doesn't mean we're treating the mental disorder. Like anorexia nervosa mm -hmm. is ultimately a mental problem. That's and, right. And, you know, the, the, the body, the effects on the body that are bad are a result of that. And you're just kind of treating the symptoms, I suppose, if you're just looking at the body. That's so, right. You know, yeah. you want to treat the mental, treating the mental, I guess it's okay to treat the body, particularly in emergencies, but mm -hmm. it's also important to treat the root, which is the, which is in the mind. That's right. And don't even get me started on ethnic or cultural issues. Oh, let's get you. I want to wind you right up. You <laughs> 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 started on ethnic and yeah. cultural issues. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I want to acknowledge that I'm coming from a, a space of a very privileged white cisgendered heterosexual woman uh, from, you know, with European ancestry. But there are many folks that come from, you know, black uh, uh, folks, uh, Arab and so on that... Um, or have, or you know, we want to acknowledge intersectionality in this space. It's not just ethnic groups, but also your, you know, how you identify as your gender. Um, you know, these pieces can come together. Trans women, for example, uh, in our mind's eye, the, they may not meet our stereotypical image of a person with anorexia. Like we tend to think of like a white Western female who's overly thin. And so practitioners may not take someone's illness seriously enough if they do not meet that mold, right? If somebody is coming who um, is living in a larger body, but experiencing a lot of um, suffering because of, of their d distorted eating patterns, this is something that we need to acknowledge. Yeah, it's, it's, it's when you say that BMI is a measure, is used as a measure of the severity of the illness, that, you know, immediately struck me as like, oh, that's, you know, a little strange because they could be really mm -hmm. suffering, right? Mm -hmm. Even if their body is not um, mm -hmm. showing the, the, the signs, you know? Uh, so do these cultural differences influence the, the prevalence statistics? I mean, do we know how common anorexia nervosa is? Uh, yes, but it is, as you allude to, and as I've been sort of driving home, like I think there's an underestimation because the criteria have been almost overly restrictive and based on a white Western model. So, you know, with that in mind, the caveat in mind, the prevalence of anorexia is actually not very high. It's about, you know, 0.3%. So three out of a thousand people. Um, it's much less common in men. So uh, 10 to 1 female, female to male ratio is the figure that's often given. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I want to address this a little later on when we talk about vulnerability. I want to do talk more about gender at that point because there are other elements at play here. And I want to acknowledge that... Um, Trans men um, are often at, at very high risk uh, for anorexia, trans women as well. So uh, the other piece, too, is there are sort of socio-demographic uh, cultural influences, uh, including occupation. So mm -hmm. uh, in vocations that encourage thinness, so modeling, elite athletes, think like synchronized swimmers, swimmers, gymnasts, uh, you would see a higher rate of anorexia nervosa in those populations. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you, you talked about body image being a part of eating disorders. Is, is it the case that people with uh, anorexia nervosa have a distorted body image? What did you mean by that? Yeah, so this is known as body dysmorphia. Um, this you know, and this, it's not just limited to eating disorders. You can have body dysmorphia, like people look in the mirror and they think their nose is really big, for example, and they obsess and they obsess. And these people um, often will be repeatedly going to plastic surgeons to try to fix what they think is mm -hmm. uh, something wrong about their 
their body or their face. But individuals with anorexia nervosa may fixate on one or more body parts. So they may insist that their stomach or butt or thighs are too fat. And as I was saying earlier, their self-esteem is closely tied to their body weight. And they perceive weight loss as an extraordinary feat of self-discipline and weight gain as an unacceptable failure. And so they tend to weigh themselves, inspect various parts of their body in their mirrors. And as I was saying, they, they, they look in the mirror and they, they honestly, genuinely feel like their, their shape is larger. If you, if you get people with anorexia to trace their body, like you get them against a wall, like with a piece of paper and, a pen and to, to trace uh, their actual shape, uh, it's very different from if you just get them to freehand what, what, what their body shape looks like. They will overestimate how, how big they actually are. So, okay, so a part of dysmorphia is just being wrong about your size. Um, mm-hmm. But is part of dysmorphia, it's also part of dysmorphia to dislike your body and be uncomfortable in it? Mm-hmm. Yep, and be yeah. obsessive and... and psychologically like really unwell like people will not leave the house because they think that everybody's staring at them wow so they think they're bigger and heavier than they are that's interesting yeah yeah and you know in and this is often in spite of how thin some of them are become right um and it manifests itself in some really interesting endophenotypes in patients with anorexia so for example in one experiment Patients with anorexia and healthy control subjects were asked to estimate whether they could fit through various sized doors without turning sideways. And healthy controls would invariably rate the doors 1.15 times wider than their shoulder widths as passable. But patients with anorexia consistently overestimated their size, and they believed that they required doors 1.33 times wider than their shoulder width. Um, and they, interestingly, they only apply this overestimation to themselves. They could accurately size up other people. Wow, that, that's a great experiment. Um, mm. So what, what are some other behaviors that characterize anorexia nervosa? Well, I would say, you know, it would relate to eating behaviors, compulsions, things related to food, um, and curious compulsive behaviors that they would show with feeding behavior. So, for example, they may choose odd food combinations, so cabbage and ketchup, or eat in a highly ritualized manner. I remember reading um, a book from a person with lived experience with anorexia who described every day she would allow herself something like six saltine crackers and she would cut up every saltine cracker into sixteenths and she would eat one sixteenth every 10 minutes um, and and not allow herself anymore. So, you know, you can see these, these compulsive behaviors and the deviation from that would cause extreme anxiety. Uh, they also... Um, are obsessed with food, so they obsess with thinking about food, and this kind of beha- they um, they may actually hoard food. So they may hoard food under their bed, or they'll they'll um, like in this day and age they'll be obsessed with recipes. They'll follow a lot of recipe accounts on say Instagram or TikTok. They'll they'll be constantly uh, interacting with uh, food or recipes um, because it's dominating their their mind at times. This sounds a lot like obsessive compulsive disorder. There is definitely a lot of symptom overlap for sure. For sure. Do you know if anyone's ever treat? Are people ever treated with OCD drugs? Do you know about that? Uh, yep. Yep, because uh, no surprise, the typical treatment for OCD involves SSRI, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and those are often um, prescribed in anorexia as well because you'll often see in anorexia comorbid mental health disorders like depression and anxiety, so they are commonly prescribed SSRIs in a way to also um, potentially deal with some of the obsessive thoughts and the compulsive behaviors, but that's Mm. typically treated with cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. So we talked about the severity of the illness, particularly the uh, physical effects, Um, and anorexia is actually a Fairly deadly disease, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, six, a recent systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in JAMA Psychiatry in 2019 found 
the standardized mortality ratio for anorexia nervosa was about 5.9, which means that individuals with anorexia are nearly six times more likely to die prematurely compared to the general population. And the most common causes of death are complications related to malnutrition. So, for example, cardiac arrhythmias, electrolyte imbalances, and organ failure. Oh, wow. So, uh, well, maybe this is a dumb question, but uh, do people that are ill... Um, with anorexia nervosa, do they know that they're ill? Do they have insight? I mean, hmm. uh, some of them, I mean, is it the kind of diagnosis that's hard to take or take seriously? Are they motivated to get better or are they just sort of caught in it? Well, it's not a dumb question at all. And it's in fact at the root of a lot of the stigma associated with eating disorders and sort of, you know, the... The difficulty seeing a loved one go through this, it's like, why can't they just eat, right? And it's very similar to addiction in that regard. We tend to think of people who have addictions to substances, why can't they just stop, right? We think it's just a disease of willpower, that if they just got more will, they would be able to get better. And in the same way, we think... They, you know, as you said, don't they have the insight? Don't they know that they're sick? Don't they, like, they can just fix it by eating. And it's not that simple because by the time somebody has developed a full-blown eating disorder, and yes, they, you know, eventually they do have insight and they do recognize that they're, they're not well, but that's not enough to, to, to have them, um, be cured, so to speak. It involves a lot of work to be able to get somebody who is very sick to, to, to become, to get into a place of wellness. And for the same reason, we see a lot of uh, symptom overlap with addiction. And in the same way, we see some of the circuits of the brain that are um, overlapping in both addiction and eating disorders. And it's often the circuits involved in reward and motivation that are dysregulated. Yeah. And, you know, I think I've read that anorexia nervosa can be described as too much willpower. I mean, it, 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 you're yeah. overcoming very primal urges to eat. And, and it's, it's over, you know, maybe in some sense overactivation of the, uh, prefrontal cortex. You know, it's, it's almost the opposite of like an addiction to a really pleasurable thing where you just can't stop yourself from engaging in pleasure. You're actually resisting it. So maybe more willpower can even hurt you, right? That's um, right. Well, think, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the brain. You want to do that, Kim? Uh, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> May, ah, I can twist your arm. Uh, uh, let's talk right. about what's going on there. Are there uh, particularly particular brain regions implicated in this disease? Yes. Um, so increasingly with modern technology and us being able to do, I would say neuroimaging research has, has yielded a lot of insights and advances into anorexia. And I, you know, we don't have time to talk about, but I want to focus in on certain areas of the parietal lobe. So for our listeners um, that aren't that familiar with brain anatomy, uh, the brain is subdivided into four lobes. We have the very front part of the brain is the frontal lobe. Uh, right next to it, uh, moving back towards the back of the head, is the parietal lobe. Uh, and the very back part of the head is the occipital lobe. Uh, and the temporal lobe is kind of um, along the side of, of the brain. But the parietal lobe kind of sitting right next to the frontal lobe is very important in body image. It's the We actually have a strip of neural tissue that actually responds to the sensation of your body that's located in the parietal lobe. And so that's no surprise that it is involved in body image. And if you have damage to this region, so, you know, eating disorders aside, if you have like a stroke or acquired brain injury or trauma to that re region, uh, you can develop a number of unusual conditions Um including people will like sometimes feel like their arm doesn't belong them to themselves or their leg. Uh, so they'll try to like throw out their, you know, insist that their, their leg doesn't belong to them and they'll th throw it out of the hospital bed or they'll, they'll ask to have it amputated. Um, they'll deny that they're paralyzed, for example, or they'll actually have what's called unilateral neglect where they, um, completely ignore one side of their body. So the, the parietal lobe, really important in your, you know, sort of your s sense of your body, your sense of your body in space and so on. And uh, if you see pictures of your own body, so if I'm looking at an image of myself 
and I'm in a brain scanner, this actually causes, uh, leads to an increase in activity in the parietal lobe. So we're getting those neurons that are firing. Uh, and interestingly, this effect is completely missing in individuals with anorexia nervosa. And the, the implication of that or the interpretation is that they've become so um, detached from their body, right? They're ignoring all those hunger cues. They're, they're, you know, they're developing body dysmorphia that normal sensations and perceptions related to your own body are completely disrupted, if not completely absent. That's really interesting because on uh, like one way to describe it is they're completely attending to their body way more than they should be, but at the same time they're kind of natural um, way they a person processes the body is Im um, impaired, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, how about hormones? Do they have an effect? Do people with anorexia have different responses or release of hormones? Maybe involved with feeding and appetite? Yes, uh, no surprise. Uh, so we'll first talk about ghrelin. So shout out to my good friend and colleague Alfie, who is the ghrelin researcher. So ghrelin is a hormone that is associated with hunger. It tends to spike right before you eat a tasty meal. So if or if I if you're, you know, right around lunchtime, and I showed you a picture of French fries, you'd get uh, a bunch of ghrelin being pumped into your bloodstream, and it'll it'll motivate you to eat. And interestingly, circulating ghrelin levels are very high in patients with anorexia nervosa. And this is expected um, because they're in a perpetual state of starvation. So it's kind of like they're constantly trying, you know, eat, eat, eat. But individuals with anorexia appear to be ghrelin resistant. So they're not responding to that normal boost of hormone. And if you inject ghrelin into patients with anorexia, uh, they don't show any expected hunger or hormonal effects. So in non-healthy uh, uh, controls, if I injected you with ghrelin, you'd suddenly be like craving food. And this doesn't happen with anorexia. So, you know, uh, it could be a cause or a consequence of the disorder. Like scientists don't really know what the directionality of, of that finding is, but it tells us definitely that they, there are um, dis there's dysfunctionality in those um, hormones that regulate appetite. Another hormone that's implicated is something called leptin. So leptin is a hormone produced and released by fat cells. It's sort of an indicator of long-term adiposity, which is a fancy word of like how much fat you have in your body. So the more fat cells you have, the more leptin that you're producing and it's signaling up into the brain. Unsurprisingly, patients with anorexia have very low levels of leptin, but for reasons that's not well understood, this also doesn't trigger a feeding response in patients with anorexia. So there's, you yeah. know, it's very much a, a, a complicated hormone profile, but there's definitely differences. So, yeah, it sounds, I mean, is it, a re it for the ghrelin and stuff, is it like a receptor problem? Like they, they have impaired receptors or do we not know? Exactly. And it's, and it's hard to measure that because the receptor for ghrelin, um, is is it's kind of unique and different and is not really readily able to be i think measured at least in humans right we can do it in animal models but the animal models aren't a, a perfect um it's not a perfect model right so yeah uh, you know there's some suggestions for that that it could be receptor insensitivity um it could be down regulation of the receptor who knows yeah i was thinking we could in yeah. inject ghrelin into a thousand kids and see if there are differences in how hungry they get and then track them later <laughs> or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, these are hard, expensive mm -hmm. studies to do. Um, That's right. Okay. And, and eth ethically, right? Like we have to think about what can we do ethically with people? Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's uh, move on to bulimia. Uh, I guess it's technically called bulimia nervosa. I guess that's also considered a nervous disease. Uh, is it similar to anorexia nervosa uh, in that maybe it's involved with body image preoccupation and those kind of issues? Yep, exactly. Uh, and uh, just to say, I love my etymology, bulimia is like the word for like hungry like an ox, right? So it's this hunger um, coupled with this nervous condition. But the big difference between anorexia and bulimia is that purging part. part. And although... You know, if you recall, I talked about anorexia. There is a subtype that is binging and purging. Um, in bulimia nervosa, it's 
the amount that people consume during the binge is way larger uh, than most people would typically consume under sim- similar circumstances. So we're talking like 10,000 calories in one sitting compared to a binge in anorexia would be more like 2,000 calories, right? Oh, wow. And then in bulimia... Um, they would attempt to compensate for excess food intake through either purging or exercise, like v- vomiting. Yeah. Okay. And by purging, you mean like throwing up, vomiting, upchucking, yeah, yeah. roughing? So, yeah. So a typical purge is the the subtype is either by vomiting or n- taking laxatives. So oh. you're trying to like, yeah, poop it out. Uh, the non-purging subtype is usually exercising or fasting, right? So they'll eat a giant, quantity of food and then they'll go to the gym and you know oh, go on the stairmaster for three hours mm-hmm. i didn't know yeah, that, so that exercising was, was a, a bulimia thing mm-hmm. that's yeah interesting. And, and people are like in gyms are actually trained some gyms not all to look out for the signs of um eating disorders in people to be able to um maybe gently um Bring right. people aside and say, hey, notice that you're on the Stairmaster for three hours a day. Is right. this healthy? Right? Yeah. 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 Um, and so the diagnosis of bulimia has something to do with this binging and purging? or Well, yeah, or exa- non-purging in some yeah. cases, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So according to the DSM, someone would receive a diagnosis of bulimia with recurrent episodes of binge eating. And that binge eating is characterized by the following. So you're eating in a discrete period of time and amount of food definitely larger than what similar people would eat in a similar time under similar circumstances. And we're not talking about Thanksgiving or Christmas feasts. This is above and beyond that. Uh, They're also experiencing uh, a lack of control over eating during the episode. So they may say, I'm only going to eat one donut and one donut turns into a dozen. And then that's coupled with recurrent inappropriate compensatory behaviors in order to prevent weight gain, such as vomiting, misuse of laxatives, diuretics, so things to make you pee, or other medications like thyroid medications they often misuse or um, meds for to control diabetes, or that non-purging subtype fasting or excessive exercise. And importantly, it has to occur on average at least once a week for a period of about three months. And then this is coupled with that self-evaluation unduly influenced by body shape and weight. So that's the other part that is key is the diagnosis. And then anorexia, you recall the severity was specified by your BMI in the case of bulimia, the severity is specified by the, f- the frequency of the binging and the purging. Oh, okay, so not related to body weight or BMI. That's right. And in fact, individuals with bulimia uh, tend to be often within the normal range or even overweight. Is it more common than anorexia? Yeah, it's actually quite common. And interestingly, particularly on university campuses, um, the other piece here I want to talk about gender now is you do see more males with bulimia than um, in anorexia. But I want to acknowledge that, uh, again, it's not just about male and female. I want to acknowledge um, trans and and queer folks that you do see very high rates of um, gender queer, gender diverse individuals with eating disorders. So uh, a very recent Canadian University survey, 2022, revealed 1% of cis men have a diagnosed eating disorder, and I'm not just talking about bulimia here, but all eating disorders, 9% of cis women, so here's that sort of 10 to 1 ratio that I was talking about earlier, but 18%, 18 18% of trans and gender non-confirming university students have a diagnosed eating disorder. Wow, just to put that in terms of frequency, that's like one out of every 100 men, almost one out of 10 women, and almost one Mm -hmm. out of five Trans or gender yeah. nonconforming. That's 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 really that's really sad and yeah. shocking. Yeah, it is a, a real concern among our trans and gender nonconforming uh, folks, and and this is why on university campuses we really need to be aware of this. And I believe Carlton, yay, we've we've recently hired um, an eating disorder specific counselor, which is really really wonderful. Oh, to see. that's great. Um, mm-hmm. All right, well, let's go on to the uh, last eating disorder we're going to discuss today, which is binge eating disorder. Um, is that now is that essentially people who binge without the purge? That's right. So um, 
In binge eating disorder, this is characterized by individuals who have regular frequent binge episodes, and this is associated with three or more of the following. You're eating more rapidly than normal. You're eating until you're uncomfortably full. You're eating large amounts of food when you're not physically hungry. You're eating alone because of feeling embarrassed by how much you're eating, or you're feeling disgusted with yourself, depressed, or very guilty afterwards. So you have a lot of these psychological states that are coupled with the eating and importantly there is no compensatory purging so it's it's binging you're eating a lot and no purging and so you can see you can probably imagine folks that have a diagnosis of binge eating disorder tend to be of a very larger body size um, this is thought to be perhaps even underdiagnosed um, and very common among um, people that are in the sort of dieting space like it's like this repeated attempt to to lose weight and they end up just binging more often than not there's a lot of thought that, you know, this is, again, more common than we, we think. Yeah. So, again, it's tied to emotions. Mm-hmm. And the guilt and shame is so prevalent in this community. Yeah. How, how common is this disorder? Well, as I was just saying, it, it's probably underdiagnosed. Um, and I want to acknowledge here, like internalized fat phobia is playing a role in in the diagnosis of this, and and in fact the stigma of of people seeking treatment, or even to see physicians, because you hear from individuals who live in a larger body, uh, how when they go to their their doctor's office or their family doctor, they're often told you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight, and they're treated very poorly and and treated as othered and less than um, because of of their body size, and so. So you, you can imagine if somebody is experiencing um, these symptoms and they're eating a lot and they're they're feeling a great amount of shame associated with that eating, the last person that they may want to seek treatment from or just go seek help from is, is a, a physician. And I want to shout out all the amazing physicians for sure that are not in that space. But I mean, there have been a lot of, you know, there's a lot of systemic um, oppressive roots in in Western medicine. And you add into that uh, individuals of color or individuals that are trans uh, or gender diverse, there's there's going to be a lot of reluctance um, to seek out treatment. So for that reason, it's probably um, quite underdiagnosed. Um, it's, it's expected at around 10% of the population, but I would say it, it, it may well even be bigger, uh, more than that. Mm-hmm, and it's right. definitely more common than anorexia or bulimia. Yeah. Um, it, it, these sound similar to substance use disorders. Um, like, I think all, all three of them, right? Um, in that people mm-hmm. lose control over their eating. Yep. And this is why I teach about eating disorders in my uh, fourth year course on the neural basis of addiction, because there are many parallels to the eating disorders as what we see with substance use disorders in that, as you mentioned, it's it's characterized by a loss of control, these compulsive behaviors. Um, there, there are very much a lot of, uh, a lot of parallels in particular with binge eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. And certain, you know, foods can be addictive and too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. And so what I would say is, you know, if you look at people that are um, have bulimia or binge eating disorder, if you look at the kinds of foods that they binge on, it's never broccoli or celery or quinoa wraps. It's donuts. It's ice cream. It's hamburgers. It's French fries. And what those all have in common is they are high fat, high sugar, high salt. And they're delicious. Today, they they are delicious. (laughs) But what I teach in my class is that those kinds of foods, if you look at sort of um, like a continuum of uh, let's let's just say uh, let's start with food, right? Like you know, we look at a hamburger. Um, This comes from meat from an animal, like a cow, let's say, and. Um, our original ancestors would have eaten the cow meat, right? They would have, you know, f- roasted over a fire. What what we are serving in these fast food industry now is very different from what our ancestors ate. And in the same way, uh, if we look at substances, um, let's take 
uh, fentanyl, right? Fentanyl is a derivative of um, heroin or morphine, which is a derivative of the opium um, uh, uh, tar, right? Which is a derivative of the poppy plant. We'll take cocaine. Uh, let's take like crack cocaine, which is a derivative of powder cocaine, which is a derivative of um, the coca plant. So what we are very good at doing in our society is taking um, natural things like foods, and plants and refining them and refining them and refining them to make them so potent that when we ingest them or take them or eat them or inject them, they have a, such a huge impact on our brain chemistry. So we're seeing that these kinds of foods lead to quote unquote a high that is akin to a high that you would have from in, from ingesting certain substances. So this is sort of what I argue is what we see with eating disorders is in part, and it's very complex as to why eating disorders happen, but in part of it is based on the kinds of foods that are available today coupled with society's, you know, um, expectations of body weight and size and shape um, that are sort of influencing this. But like substance use disorders, not everybody develops these compulsive behaviors. And for those that do, you do tend to see this similar clinical features among eating disorder clients. So they show tolerance. So they're eating more than they originally intended. They're experiencing withdrawal, like they get the sugar rush and then they feel the crash. They have the craving, the loss of control, the preoccupation, the dysregulated roles, and so on and so forth. So there are some clinical and behavioral parallels. Yeah. And, and not only is the food we ate different back when we spent most of our evolution, but these things, fat, sugar, and salt were rare. So we, we evolved to find them really tasty to eat them when we found them. I read one um, account, an anthropologist was following a uh, hunter gatherer who came across a beehive and uh, that, that person ate a pint of honey in one sitting because sugar what? is so rare. I mean, that's unimaginable, though. <laughs> but, like, that's the only sugar they're going to get for, like, you know, a long time, right? Mm-hmm. So, it's now we're in a world where you can just get, like, the sugar is so abundant. In fact, it's even cheaper than, you know, mm-hmm. leafy mm-hmm. greens and everything else. Um, so, do we see similar brain changes with, you know, food and drugs and stuff? Yes, that's the kind of interesting thing. So, if we look at the key brain regions that are implicated in addiction or substance use disorders, it typically involves deficits in the parts of the brain that are involved in reward, as well as parts of the brain that are involved in control, so the prefrontal cortex. We do see some neurobiological parallels. So over time, people with substance use disorders, we see a down regulation or tuning down of dopamine, the endocannabinoids, the endorphins. So individuals are feeling low, so they need the drug or the substance to to, uh, feel good again. And then normally the prefrontal cortex kind of controls how dominant those lower brain regions are. It's like that voice saying, do it, do it, do it. The prefrontal cortex is like, no, no, no. Uh, With addiction, you see that, again, the tuning down of the prefrontal cortical control. And we see this with uh, eating disorders as well. In particular, binge eating disorder, it's the most studied. But I want to emphasize that we are constrained to some extent with the models that we use. It's very difficult to develop binge eating disordered rats and mice. And it it focuses on the food and the body shape, which as we were talking at the beginning, it's not about the food and it's not about the body weight. It's something else going on in control and the mind and the association of the pleasure and the food and so on. So we need to just do a bit better to be able to um, explore this. Well, you can't, uh, you can't make a rat hate its body image. No. Right. They're pretty cool with their bodies. They are. It's imperfect. (laughs) Let's let's move on to the vulnerability. Like who's who's likely to get an eating disorder? What are some of the risk factors? So it is a you know a complex combination of genes, the environment, and culture. So 
you do see eating disorders that run in families, particularly anorexia, it suggests a genetic component. But also, if you're eating in the home where mom or dad is, const- well, it's more likely mom restricting food, this is a pattern that you're going to watch and you're going to observe, right? We do hear this often uh, with clients who have a parent that was overly restrictive with, with their their own intake and then therefore their, their children's in- intake. Um, there's some personality traits that you see that are associated mm-hmm. with eating disorders and anorexia. It's perfectionism uh, with all of them. It's low self-esteem. You mentioned OCD. You have OCD-type tendencies that can contribute to this. Um, Dieting and weight concerns. Again, this is peer. It's social. It's familial. So... uh, even people who frequently diet with no intent, and I want to, like, nobody wants to develop anorexia, right? Nobody wants to develop bulimia, but just the the behaviors associated with that, if that is occurring at key points in development, particularly in adolescence, can increase the risk of, of developing these disorders, especially if you're fixated on your body weight and your shape. Right. So, I bet there's a lot of factors from the culture that the person is in too, right? For sure, because different cultures, different ethnicities, different body shapes and body types and eating and relationships to eating are very, very different. And we we definitely need to do a better job of having a cross-cultural, cross-ethnic lens on acknowledging some of the risk factors. Um, and that brings me to socio-cultural factors. So, there are definitely societal pressures to conform to unrealistic beauty standards. We tend to idealize thinness um, in media. Now, like the whole diet industry is now in the new guise of the wellness industry, particularly in social media. Um, and this is particularly among people who are highly influenced by these cultural ideals. And we think about this generation of young girls and young men that are being fed a constant diet of imagery on platforms, social media platforms, this we know is, is, is a rather huge risk factor. And particularly during the pandemic, we saw a massive escalation in the rates of eating disorders um, among wow. youth. And there's some thinking that it had to do with that sort of mix of, you know, the pandemic, school closures, um, anxiety, worry, concern, then what are they doing? They're spending all day on their phones, right? So peer pressure is a big piece of this as well. Um, we know that adolescents, young adults are vulnerable to peer pressure, societal influences that can play a role in the development of these disorders. And then um, also history of trauma or abuse. Uh, so like uh, substance use disorders, if individuals have a life history of, or of trauma or abuse, including physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, they may be at higher risk of developing eating disorders as a way to gain sense of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, yeah, it's going to be quite distressing. Yeah, and I know there's certain sports like wrestling, they try to keep their weight down. And if you're a dancer, of course, there's a look that people expect. Uh, like you can't even, you know, make it as a ballerina unless you're really thin. Um, are these activities related to eating disorders? Yeah, as I I think I was alluding to a little earlier, there are certain professions and certainly uh, sports, certain sports or athletes that are at risk because of simply, um, you know, the sport that they're in, they have a, a greater, either their, their body's on display, like swimming and gymnastics or things like wrestling, uh, you think you were saying, rowing, where you have to maintain weight. Um you have to be to to compete in a certain weight class. Right. So for like a sy- for a synchronized swimmer, you have to look a certain way. But for yeah. uh, you know a um, a wrestler, you have to fit a weight class. And if That's you're right. rowing, obviously a lighter weight means you can move the boat faster. So there's all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. In sumo yep. wrestling, it's the opposite. You want to be heavy. That's right. Well, well, even heavyweight um, rowing, right? You want to maintain the heavy weight, right? So oh, a, they I didn't know they had weight classes mm-hmm. in rowing. Yeah. Uh, yep. yep. Uh, the last few things we're talking about vulnerability, like family dynamics, uh, parents that are very critical, have a very controlling, also preoccupied with weight and appearance in the family can contribute to development. 
Um, there's uh, comorbid mental health conditions, so depression, anxiety, OCD often co-occur, um, and they can increase the risk of developing the disorder as a coping strategy. And then finally, changes in life circumstances. So I want to emphasize this because I mentioned university populations, eating disorders are one of the highest um, diagnosed categories of mental health disorders on uh, in university students. Um we know that major life transitions or stressors such as moving away to university, relationship challenges, you know, loneliness um, can definitely trigger the onset of eating disorders in vulnerable individuals. So how, how do we treat eating disorders? Well, as you can imagine, it's not easy. Uh, there's a very high relapse rate. So um, I, I would say... Where we need to go is, is is developing better treatments for eating disorders. It requires a multifaceted approach, often a combination of medical, nutritional, and psychological interventions. So, first off, medical st stabilization is important. If somebody is really, really unwell and their body weight is so low that they're they're at risk of of um, malnutrition, they often need to be in hospital, right? So that if somebody is um, uh, brought in as an inpatient into a, an eating disorder floor, the first thing, the first goal is to get their body weight up. They need mm -hmm. to be, to, to, to have like nutritional rehabilitation. Uh, you cannot do psychological therapy on somebody who is severely underweight. Think about how, how the brain, which is an organ, is severely depleted of essential nutrients. So you need to stabilize them. You need to rehabilitate them nutritionally in order to get them to a healthy, reasonable weight, and that's with uh, anorexia, as you can imagine, before you start other forms of um, therapeutic um, interventions. So, for the most part, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder often involves, treatment involves psychotherapy. Uh, I mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy is the gold standard. You can also do family-based treatments, uh, particularly mm -hmm. if you are seeing dysfunctional family relationships, and if mom or dad is also showing Showing, you know, some tendencies in that space. Other therapeutic approaches, like something called dialectical behavioral therapy. Have you heard about that? TBT. It's kind of a I don't new. Think I know much about it. Yeah, it's 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 about distress tolerance, um, and increasingly we're seeing this among youth and young adults. Is a lot of uh, mental health challenges relate to the inability to cope with distress or stress. So DBT is focused on that. Um, touching on medication, uh, sometimes this is prescribed, although there's no one drug for eating disorders, um, with one exception, which I'll mention in a minute. In a minute. Uh, like I said, depression, anxiety, OCD, often comorbid, so um, SSRIs are typically uh, prescribed to manage those symptoms. The one exception with meds um, is with binge eating disorder. There are now new lines of medicine that target the opioid receptor in the brain, which is pretty mm. interesting. So scientists have shown that um, uh, endorphins, which are our body's natural sort of like feel-good hormones, they bind, there, there are uh, endogenous opioids, kind of like morphine, they bind to specific classes of receptors in the brain called mu opioid receptors. And scientists have associated mu opioid receptor activity with craving. Hmm. And that's in the, in the context of substances and eating. So the new drugs um, that are being put onto market are um, their mu opioid antagonists. So they block the activity of the mu opioid receptor to reduce cravings and therefore reduce um, binging. Um, but if you can imagine, if you're blocking the mu opioid receptor, it's involved in like feelings of well-being, that's no good. So it's uh, the, the formulation is actually a mix of a mu opioid receptor antagonist and then also uh, an antidepressant to kind of tune up the, the body's other circuits that are involved in well-being. So that's meds. Um, and then I just want to acknowledge... Again, relapse rates are very high in, in folks with eating disorders. So, um, 
it's not enough just to get treatment and say, see you later. You have to have ongoing support that's provided to individuals, particularly youth adolescents, because they are very high risk of relapse. And you want to nip it in the bud. You want to deal with it right away. You want to be able to, to treat it early. And that has been shown increasingly to, to be good for relapse preventive prevention. So long-term follow-up is crucial. Right. So right. early in, early intervention, the longer the disorder goes untreated, the more challenging it can be to achieve recovery. So family support is really important. Um, and I just want to say, if you or someone you know is struggling with eating disorders, seeking professional help is essential for the best can- chances of recovery. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this, Kim. Um, and um, it's also really helpful, I find, sometimes to read personal accounts of mm. of diseases, particularly mental diseases, and I just want to uh, pitch my uh, my friend wrote a very funny book about anorexia nervosa, if you can believe that, called The Skinny, um, mm. that I recommend. It's and uh, it talks a lot about you know the relapsing and how difficult it is, and uh, it really was eye opening for me. And um, but uh, also we're going to have a link in our show notes for information for those who are seeking support and resources, and we wish everybody good health. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, all. Minding the Brain is gratefully sponsored by Carleton University's Faculty of Science. If you find this show valuable and you want to support Minding the Brain, consider leaving us a review or rating on your podcast app of choice. Leaving a review or rating increases our visibility and helps new listeners discover the show. If you want to connect with Minding the Brain on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Minding the Brain. You can also find more episodes and show notes at our website, MindingTheBrainPodcast.com. Thank you for listening to Minding the Brain.